curious, competitive, compassionate. Salespeople are drawn to their careers in much the same way musicians are drawn to music. Once you've learned the language of sales, the beauty is in your ability to personally interpret what you've learned to suit your personality, your interest, and your skill. My name is Roger Burnett, and this is the So You're In Sales podcast, where we consider ways to grow as people as we advance in our careers and learn firsthand from those ahead of us on the path to accelerate our journey. I'm lucky to get to talk every two weeks with entrepreneurs, business owners, thought leaders, authors, and people of all walks of life, each with a unique story to share and a look at their lessons along the way. Prepare to be educated, informed, entertained, and inspired. This is the So You're In Sales Podcast. The So You're In Sales Podcast is sponsored by Social Good Promotions. Social Good Promotions was founded on the premise that any business can stand out from their competition when they are doing things they really believe in. True success these days is measured by the ways your employees feel about working for you and the ways your business is making the community a better place. Ultimately, it's about the ways you and your business will be remembered. If you're looking to grow your sales revenue while activating social good at the same time, we'll be your favorite marketing partner ever. Book a meeting with us at socialgoodpromotions.com, follow us on Instagram at sogoodpromo, and let's get connected. We've done great work using our unique and effective strategy. Let us show you how. Now, on with the show. So we're up early on a Saturday morning for a conversation with Anthony Anarino. Anthony is a highly respected international speaker, best-selling author, entrepreneur, and sales leader specializing in the complex business-to-business sale. He's founder and managing partner of two family-owned businesses in the staffing industry, leading both entities in strategic planning while also growing sales. Anthony is best known for his work at the sales blog, driving his status as a thought leader in sales strategy. As best-selling author of two books, 2016's The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need and the recently released The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the 10 Commitments That Drive Sales, Anthony guides readers through the turbulent waters of selling in the digital age and provides actionable outcomes for those willing to not only make the investment in the books, but to put the tactics he outlines into practice. Additionally, Anthony is a husband, a father of three humans, including twins, some number of cats and dogs I counted, And while he may have graduated from Harvard, he now, as do I, call the Midwest home when we're not dreaming of sunshine, warm temps, and blue skies somewhere else. Right, Anthony? A (laughs) hundred percent. So if, like, without consequence at this very moment, I could wave a magic wand and the whole Anarino family could just be transported to a new destination, where would it be? Right now it would be New York City, uh, only because that's what's next on the agenda. New York City. New York City, wow. Yeah, we the love concrete. the city. So, yeah. Well, there's a different kind of energy, certainly, in that kind of space as opposed to where you and I call home, no doubt about it. A hundred percent. And it's it's not suburbia either. It's a very, uh, very different feel. And we like theater and we like stuff like that. So New York's yeah. up next. Awesome. Looking forward to seeing you there. 
Well, so you know, Anthony, I had the good fortune to have had the esteemed Mark Schaefer on a few episodes ago. And uh, as we were finishing up, as I'm most likely going to do to you too after we stop the recording, I asked Mark who else I might approach for a discussion about sales as a discipline. And believe it or not, like you, you were the first person he said. So shout out to Mark for connecting us. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, and, Mark. Thanks a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you turned me and, over. All right. And I'm like, I'm super pumped to talk to you about the, uh, some of the underlying premises behind, you know, not really just your books, but your writing across the board, right? Okay. So you, you, you good in getting into that? 100%. All right, let's roll. So I've not been doing podcasts a tremendously long amount of time. I started in 2017. You, on the other hand, have been at it for a very long time over there um, on your In the Arena podcast. So anybody who doesn't know about that should go check it out. There's lots of great guests over there. Uh, but I've had the... I personally have had the good fortune to interview guests with businesses that have ranged in size from like a one man shop to I interviewed a guy who is the president of a $50 million promotional products agency. We had another guy on that works for a conglomerate that aggregates about $700 million worth of business every year. So I've had a really broad spectrum of pr practitioners come on, Anthony. So I, I wanted to get, give you the chance to give some context to your life as a sales leader. So let's talk a little bit about your sales background. So if you could tell, tell us a little bit about the family businesses you lead and sort of for the sake of context, try to paint a picture around the kind of business that is or maybe the size of business that you're competing for with each of those companies. That's a fun question. I, I started in the family business when I was 19 years old because I was fronting a, a hard rock band at night playing all over the state of Ohio, and I needed some way to make money while I was doing that because you don't make money doing that kind of a gig. I mean, we made a little bit of money, but 600 bucks a night split four ways isn't a lot of money. You're not going to live on it. And I thought it'd be a way not to have to work very hard. You know, it's the family business, so you're going to get a lot of slack, but it turns out that the opposite is true. And I started interviewing light industrial candidates for work at warehouses and distribution centers. But I was told that when I wasn't busy interviewing, I should call people to see if they could use any help. And I did without knowing that I was ever selling. Right. But under the persuasion of uh, a beautiful woman, I was told I should move to Los Angeles to front a hair metal band. So <laughs> I didn't give it very much more thought than that. And I got in my car and I drove across the country to to move my myself and my act to Los Los Angeles. When I got there, I had to find a job, and I went into a staffing business, and uh, ultimately, my manager recognized that I'd won more clients than the three salespeople combined, and he said, I want you to cut your hair and to go into full-time outside sales, and what I heard him say was, I want you to cut your hair and become a psychopathic axe murderer, because <laughs> in my mind, there's nothing worse than salespeople at that time, and I'm thinking, gosh, why would he think that of me? And uh, ultimately, I took the job. I ended up in full-time sales, did terrible, um, had some rough edges knocked off because I decided at that time that now that I'm a real salesperson, I have to do things to people and not for people and with people. And when you start trying to do things to people, they start to resist what you're trying to do because they're not there yet. And uh, after a little bit of time, 
Well, not that much time. I got better really fast. I won a $10 million account, the largest account on the western half of the United States. But I made no commission off of that because I had a brain surgery. I had a grand mal seizure while I was there. Ended up having to move back to Ohio because I wasn't allowed to drive for two years and had two brain surgeries. Uh, One which included removing a piece of damaged brain from the back right front temporal lobe. So at any time you think there's something missing upstairs, Roger... We, we we have concrete evidence that that's in fact true. Oh wow! I went back into the family business and uh, grew it from three million to fifty million, and uh, then started a few other businesses with uh, other, I guess, groups of family members. So we've got three businesses right now, and uh, I still have a, a role in those businesses, and that that's that's the short version. Well, what a story. My goodness. Just anecdotally, it's so interesting to hear you say what you said about how you felt when you came to understand that you were going to be a salesperson. So when I was but a wee lad, there was that was back in the days of there were still door to door salespeople. And my mom, I kid you not, would make us lie on the floor and hide when salespeople would come to the door. And you know, as as a little kid, I thought it was a game. But as I got to be a little bit older and started to you know think through this process of why why were we hiding from people on our front porch? It just it didn't make any sense to me. And so I came to understand from asking my mom, you know, that question that she believed that salespeople were evil people that would try to make you take things from them that you didn't really need. That, that's a hundred percent right. And so. As I started to mature and get into my later adolescence and you know my early adulthood, imagine my horror when people started to say things to me like, oh my God, I think you would be such a great salesperson. <laughs> and you're like, you mean a creepy person that stands on other people's porches and makes them buy things they don't really need? Yes, you're perfectly <laughs> suited for that, Roger. <laughs> so let's, let's add to that that my first job in sales was selling Cutco knives. That's a good first job. So talk about having to reconcile yeah. your own demons of people who are trying to make people buy things that they don't need and then selling really expensive knives to people. I, I love it as a first job. Uh, there, there's a couple things. One, you're going to get no a lot. And you're going to have a, you're going to have an immunity to that really quickly because you, you don't have any choice. And the second thing is you're going to get through the conflict aversion of interrupting people. And if you're conflict averse, selling is really hard. But really, really difficult. Yeah, because there's a little bit of it in, involved. It's mostly collaboration now, but the, it, it comes with conflict because business and human relationships come with conflict, not because sales is somehow special. Right. Right. Well, and it's being comfortable with the fact that that is the case instead of trying to make excuses for it or somehow try to hide from it. Right. right and correct. that's a that's a really underlying theme uh, in your book here about the whole notion of being willing to uh, speak to the elephants in the room often, which so I give you lots of credit to that. So when when typically when I've had authors on, um, I, I've realized a, kind of an overarching thread, which is this notion that people write a business book most of the time intending to fill a very specific vacuum, right? So something the author comes to recognize is saying like, hey, I see this as an underserved need because look, I mean, I think you and I would agree um, being in sales thought leadership is a crowded and noisy place. So being able to have 
your arena, your niche, your specialty, if you will, oftentimes will give you that opportunity to be able to stand out in that crowded marketplace. So um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, did that apply to you? And was there something that compelled you to start writing the first book from the very beginning? I wrote a book, uh, not because I had a contribution to make, but because I wanted to get rich, Roger. Nice. No, I'm kidding. You're not going to get rich writing a book. That's never going to happen unless you happen to write Harry Potter or something like that. Right. Um, right. You write a book because you have something important to say that's going to benefit other people. That's that's the only reason to write a book. There's not really another reason to do it. It, it doesn't pay in any other way. Um, to do that, to spend the time or the energy. There's lots of other things you could do to make money. The first book for me is what's called a competency model. And, and what that means is that there are certain things that you have to be made up of to be successful in sales. And half of it's mindset and half of it is skill set. And when I look at all of the books that have been written on sales and all of the thought leadership and everything that's being written, there's this massive gap where it's it's a skill or it's an approach or it's a fad like social selling. There's all these things that get people's attention that doesn't address the real issue. And the real issue is, are you somebody that's worth doing business with in the first place? And second, do you have the skills to be able to succeed in this endeavor? The first half of the book is things like self-discipline and optimism and caring and competitiveness and resourcefulness and initiative and persistence and communication and accountability. All of these things are never addressed, but those are the factors you're being measured on. And those things are what will destroy your results. And no one's ever spoken to them before. And the second half of the book are things, skills like closing and prospecting and negotiating. And I added business acumen, change management and leadership, because those are the skills that are necessary in B2B sales now. But when I looked, there wasn't anything like this. And honestly, the first publisher that asked me for the book hated it. They said, really? why on earth would you start with self-discipline? Nobody has that and everybody hates it. <laughs> and, and why would you put caring in a book about sales? And I knew then his view was the same as your mom's. Where right. does caring fit into this? We're supposed to hide from these creeps. Right. And, and th- they, they didn't understand what selling has become. It's an endeavor where we help people get results they can't get without us, and it's serving them and helping them make a set of commitments that allow them to move their business forward to a better future state, whatever that is. Yeah, and I just for the sake of the technological difficulty that we had, right at the very beginning, you were talking about the underlying premise. So just restate that for me one more time. Yeah, the underlying premise is that selling requires a certain set of attributes and a certain set of skills. And the the attributes are beliefs and behaviors or character traits that you need to improve because the deficiencies there will destroy your results faster than anything else. Yeah, I think it's funny you you say that. I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, the relationships between salespeople and their first line sales managers is often this dance of uh, collective excuse making for why we collectively have not achieved what we should achieve. Right. And, you know, what... As your manager, what what deflections? What what you know? Where are you going to go hide, and where am I going to let you hide for your inability to, to achieve what it is that you're actually supposed to be doing? So um, I, I totally get you on that one for sure. Um, but so so 
as we as we speak specifically though to the second book, like I think I read that this second book was actually a chapter in the first yes. book. Is that accurate? That's right. Okay, so so um, do you do you see the new book as a complement? Do, do they work better in tandem? So if if someone's listening and and likes what they have to hear from what we're talking about and want to get involved with your content, would you suggest them in tandem or do you think they stand on their own? They stand on their own for sure. But I would tell you, I spent this morning writing, you know, a couple thousand words for the third book and all three books are really just one book, but there's not a way to, to write a book that's 140,000 words. No one would buy that book and no one would publish it because the price point gets to be outrageous. The first book is who do you have to be? And the Uh second book is what do you have to do as it pertains to actually helping people change? So The Lost Art of Closing is the first book, maybe the second book. If you look at James Muir's The Perfect Close, uh, which he published a little before my book came out, but I think we'd written them at about the same time, which is interesting. And I did a podcast with him, if anyone wants to listen to that. There's been nothing written that doesn't include the puppy dog clothes and the alternative to choice and the Ben Franklin and the doorknob and a hundred other closes with ridiculous names that don't mean anything, but that right. are a variation of trying to do something to someone instead of for someone and with someone. That books, those books collectively for their time were what salespeople were taught to do. It's how they behaved. And in some cases it served them. And in some cases it served their clients, but it's a different time. And those tactics and those kinds of strategies just don't make sense anymore. Now we have to be consultative. We have to be able to provide advice and we have to be able to be directive enough to help people make the decisions that they need to make to be able to move their business forward and make the real change that they're trying to make. And that's a very different person who can do that, which is why the first book came first. And then how do you do that? If you've never had a model of somebody that knows what the commitments are and knows the language choices you might want to use that don't make you smarmy, self-oriented, persuasive, manipulative, then that book will serve that gap for you. Together, they're great. The third book is another book along the same line, but it's got a little bit more of an aggressive approach because it's about competitive displacements, but it's still in the spirit of of serving and integrity and character and all the things that I think, the deep truths. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a fundamentals and a deep truth guy, so I don't write timely things. I don't care about uh, current affairs or politics or fads like social media or any of that. I'm more interested in the things that endure over thousands of years, not things that endure over four years. <laughs> so one of one of the other uh, guests that came on, if if I have like a, a top ten list of things that have been said on mic with me, uh, my buddy Matt Lamb said, "I haven't seen in ten years anyone in our industry really killing it with social media, but I've seen a ton of people killing it with hard work and focus." <laughs> Seems to be a, a an age old recipe that continues to produce exactly the results you expect it would. No doubt, no doubt. So let, let me ask you um, from from the the reader perspective, so the the target audience. You know, I I entered our discussion with an idea of what I believed that to be, and that and was wrong automatically. Whatever it, it was, it I don't even need it. to know. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm, I was looking at it from the perspective of. If 
if I'm riding around doing whatever it is I'm doing while I'm listening to a podcast and I'm in sales and I'm listening to the two of us, I'm trying to evaluate myself and my own sales efforts against what I'm hearing, right? So in my mind, I naturally gravitate towards the early veteran, someone who's been in, in sales for a while, in B2B sales for a while. They've had some success. They've had some failures, but they've come to the conclusion that I'm in sales for the long haul. I'm, this is what I'm going to do for a career. I may not always work selling what I sell today, but I've made the decision that as a discipline, much like being a doctor or someone else who has to get a professional degree, I've made the decision to do that with sales. So that was, that was what I was seeing, you know, um, enterprise salespeople, early veterans, but tell me how wrong I am. I, well, you're not, you're not wrong. I mean, there's certainly, this book is going to serve them. And one of the things about me as a, as a teacher is that I'm your capstone, you know, 410 class in your senior year as it pertains to sales. Yeah. And I, I, am a fundamentals guy. I can help you all the way along the path, but I would say I would roll beginners into this too, or people who haven't yet made that commitment only because the first book and the second book together, if you want to really explore whether or not sales is the right endeavor for you, you need to get some modern up-to-date information. And you may right. not get that from your manager or your leader. You may not see the things that you need to see and understand what you need to understand. And the first book will give you an idea about who do you have to be to win. And that's the thing that you have the greatest control over. Who are you? Right. Do you have sure. character? Do you have integrity? Do you have business acumen? Can you really help people? Is that really where your heart is? Do you want to do this? And the second book, there's, there's no part of selling that doesn't require commitment gaining. And I wanted to call the book The Art of Commitment Gaining because Uh it's really just gaining a series of commitments for the client's benefit. Why should I spend time with you? Why should I explore doing something different? Why do I have to change now? What does this need to look like? How do I collaborate with you to get that done? Who else do we need to bring into this team? And all of these commitments, if you don't know they exist, if you don't know that you have to get what Neil Rackham and Spincelling called an advance – which Correct. was the original kernel of the idea here that I took and practiced 100%. for decades before yep. I wrote a 100%. book like this. If you don't know that, you're completely unarmed and ill-equipped to do the job because yep. you don't know really how to help somebody go through these steps and the commitments that they have to make. So I would broaden it. And if you could give this book to somebody who's very early, the early successes that they have by understanding where they are is going to make sales a much more attractive endeavor to them. But going in and not having any real knowledge of what's happening or how to get those results can be extraordinarily frustrating. Heck, it can be frustrating when you do know what you're trying to do. So you, you hit on, it's such an interesting, um, that, that the way that you just contextualize what you said is so interesting to me for a number of reasons. One, I have a 23-year-old who just started as a salesperson. And... Uh, we, we forced him somewhat to go into office equipment sales, my wife and I, who that's, we both got our start there. And so we suggested to him that it would be really smart for him to go there because those manufacturers are still producing a fair amount of sales training. And while it may not be the best sales training, some sales training is better than no sales training. And it gives you a great opportunity to hear a lot of no's just like selling knives. So 
Um, but what I was disappointed by was when he came back from his corporate expensive, time-consuming sales training, I realized how it hadn't changed since when I left 15 years ago. It's the exact same sales training. It's astonishing to me that that industry has not kept up with what's going, what's actually going on in the world of enterprise and B2B sales. It's, it's so vitally important that you understand that it's not the same as 15 years ago, not even close. And it's somewhat damaging to the salesperson because it's almost like teaching them a bad golf swing on day one. Right. That's right. And if you teach somebody old smarmy closing techniques, Roger, which works better for you, 10 a.m. on Wednesday or 2 p.m. on Thursday? The alternative of choice. I'm not actually giving you a choice. And you're like, really? You're going to make me pick from two choices. Seriously, that's the best that you have. Uh, It it, it doesn't serve people. Totally, for sure. So it brings so that brings up another another topic that I wanted to cover with you. So I have written a ton. Actually, at one stage, I wrote a four point a four part series on my belief that it is a salesperson's responsibility today to be a specialist and not a generalist. And I, I draw that line in your book based on the commandments, right? So I, I look at the way you outline what you believe is necessary of a salesperson in order to win a enterprise piece of business is it's a big budget item. The buying decisions made by more than one person. So my, my belief is that that means it's going to be a longer sales cycle typically. And, um, Typically, longer sales cycles require more significant investment in time and resources. So I would tell you, I, it, as that pertains to specialization, I agree with it 100% because you need smaller territories, you need fewer accounts, you need to be able to really understand the business of those accounts that you're trying to earn in order to be able to devise a solution that's actually going to do what it is that you're suggesting those commandments will will create. So I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on that thought. I just think it's interesting you keep calling them commandments like I carved them into tablets. It's just commitments. <laughs> it's not, I'm not commanding no. you to do anything. No, I think, I think if you accept them as universally true, they become a commandment. Okay, um, then we're going to call them the Ten Commandments from now on, <laughs> although people are going to be very confused by that. <laughs> Very confused, for sure. Who does he think he is giving us <laughs> commandments? <laughs> right, right. Um, I, I agree, and I'm going to just um, maybe try to have some disagreement with that in a little bit. I think it, it is absolutely critical that you're a specialist and you know how to get the outcomes that the client needs. That part is true. But I also think that you have to be enough of a generalist to have the business acumen to understand how business generally works. And I do think it's important for you to operate as sort of a good general manager. Not that you do operational work, not that you're involved in finances, but you've had enough experience around it to be able to have the vocabulary to have a business conversation with another human being. So you're a specialist in saying, I know how to apply these resources to generating these kinds of outcomes And I got enough knowledge about your business and general business principles to tell you this is a better decision than that, and here's why. And this is going to produce a better result for you, but you're going to need to make this trade-off and invest more money than you're thinking of, but you're going to get a way outsized return, and here's why. And you do have to be broad enough to be valuable to somebody. And my the only reason I'm pushing back is because if you think product knowledge by itself is going to get you there, you're wrong. 
because the product just doesn't carry anywhere near enough weight. And and I, I can tell you every salesperson on earth would love to have this deal. We have the very best product on earth. People are going to beat a path to our door to buy it. And all you have to do is take their order and yeah. uh, you're a salesperson. Nobody has that. It just isn't enough. It's now you're the value proposition. So right. you need to be a specialist, but you also need to be wide enough and broad enough in your understanding to really help people. Yeah, that's that's actually you've expounded on that concept brilliantly. Uh, my wife, as I mentioned, also uh, enterprise salesperson. She works in software sales, and she, as I mentioned, you know, we got our start in the office products industry, and that's not an easy progression. There's not a straight line drawn between those two kinds of sales. One is a straightforward product sale, and the other one is much more of a, a solution architecture. And um, it was because of her business acumen and her ability to be able to identify problems and develop business cases that she's been able to be successful at that job. And she's actually very unique in comparison to the rest of her peers in the industry, because most of them are traditionally IT trained salespeople and she's the opposite of that. And so to your point, you, if you don't have enough business acumen to be able to develop the impact of what the solution is that you're creating for the business, both from a financial impact, but also organizationally what it's going to do, then your opportunity to succeed is but a fraction of what, everybody else is trying to accomplish. And it's for reasons that are because you're not willing to address them, they're 100% out out of your control. Because you're not willing to address them. And that's really the root of the first book. I mean, you, you, you have to find your own deficiencies, business acumen being one of them, and you have to correct it. That first book was very prescriptive. There's basically five or six exercises at the end of each chapter. This book was very prescriptive. There's basically five or six exercises at the end of each chapter and a reading list which uh, one of my favorite criticisms I got on the book on uh, Audible on a negative review said, the book says it's the only sales guide you'll ever need and then provides a recommended reading list in each chapter. (laughs) (laughs) And I I love that. And there is, there's a recommended reading list in every chapter. Like if you need more discipline, this is a good start, but pick up Brian Tracy's book, you know, pick up other books, find some other resources. Yeah. Still my favorite criticism. That's great. That's great. It's like, how, how can I be creative in my criticism? <laughs> All right. So here, here's kind of where I think I'm hoping we're at. So if we've, if we've done anything for our listening audience, I'm hoping there are some people out there who are identif- identifying with what we're talking about and saying, like, holy crap, I, I've got to up my game if I want to live where that sounds like. So, you know, not everybody wants to do that. And that's completely fine. But, you know, there are definitely people there's, there's, I know there's a handful of them. I personally know that are going to most likely be listening to this who are trying to be exactly what we're talking about. So if you had two minutes to spend with those people, what would you suggest to them would be a best practice way for them to sort of get going from this point forward? If you want to become a trusted advisor, if, if that's what you want to do and you want to be consultative, and I, I left this part out of my story. So my my greatest skill and what I built a business on was competitively displacing larger, better resource national or international firms as a small, scrappy, uh, resource-starved company. And mm-hmm. if that sounds like you, then what you have to do is decide, 
I'm going to go pick a fight up a few weight classes. Right. But but the the way I think about this, I'm a boxing fan, is there's some boxers who just have heavy hands. And sure. every punch that they throw counts for a lot more than a punch from someone else because of their technique and because of where the punch comes from. You have to develop the ability to have really heavy hands and to really, really be able to fight weight classes above where you are. And that's a personal decision. And if you're here and you're still listening to this, you are one of those people. And if you are one of those people, then you have to make the decision and the commitment to say, I'm going to change now. I'm going to start upping my game as it pertains to getting the business acumen I need, getting an understanding of any deficiencies that I might have in correcting those, building my business acumen, and really committing myself to doing the work to become a trusted advisor. And you only need two things to be a trusted advisor. Do you know what they are? You're going to tell me. Trust and advice. It's a very simple, <laughs> it's a very simple recipe. So the trust comes from the fact that you're somebody worth doing business with, and I know you, I like you, I trust you. The advice part comes from my experience and my knowledge and my research and my work at understanding this and my interviewing dozens of people in your space and me sharing my experiences, and this is why this failed. That's the part that's going to make you the advisor. You have, you have to have some scars. You have to have some challenges that you faced. You have to have the failures. So many of us don't want to talk about the failures, but that's where our biggest lessons came from. And going to a client saying, no look, doubt. we tried this three times. We wanted to make it work the way that you did it. We designed it this yeah. way. And three times we failed, even though we put every resource we had against it. We just found this to be a better choice in this particular situation, and I think we should look at that together. But if you don't have that context, it's very difficult. So I will tell you, the time it takes you to do this is the rest of your life, but the decision to do it is right now. That just takes one second. You commit, you say, I'm going to start marching down this path, and you get better from day to day and from call to call. 100%. Yeah, I'm I'm with you all the way on that, and I'm hoping that... uh, sufficiently motivated listeners might make that snap decision to say, you know what, that it's, it's time. So um, I'm looking forward to the feedback that we'll get from the session. Um, it's always really interesting to hear what folks have to share with us in return. And I will certainly make sure that I pass along what I hear from uh, the folks out there. And, and Anthony, I really appreciate the time. It was a lot of fun and I look forward to it. And maybe we can do it again sometime. Oh, happy to. Thanks for having me on. Cool, man. Thanks.